Well, hey, good morning, Journey. Um, man, it is hot. <laughs> I don't know if you experienced that this week. I don't know why I'm ever surprised by that. I've lived in Texas most of my life, and so we experience the heat when it comes. And so definitely makes us thankful for the cool and air conditioning. Um, so, man, I don't, I don't know if you're ready for this, but I am, uh, I, I am ready uh, to start the book of Judges. Uh, it's, it's one of those books that we've probably heard quoted from or talked about, then it's referenced in other things, but we don't typically just read through the book of Judges. It's one of those things that it probably is not the most pleasant reading uh, to read through, and there's some kind of weird stuff going on in the book of Judges. We're like, how does this fit uh, with Christ? How does this fit with the gospel message? How does this fit with the overall story of the Bible? So I'm excited. We're going to start uh, the book of Judges this week. Um, and it's going to take us uh, through the rest of the summer uh, to get through uh, Judges. So there are several different ways uh, that, that we study the Bible um, and even do sermon uh, preparation. So just give you a little insight of it. There's, there's certain texts that you do. Obviously, we go verse by verse. This, we're going to take big swaths of Judges. We are going to read through all of it. Uh, but some of it, what will happen is I'll read part of the text, and I'm going to explain what's happening in, in the rest of it because there's just a lot going on in the book of Judges. And uh, so I hope that will help keep us on track with that uh, as we travel through this. So, um, so when you look at the book of Judges, you have to go to the book just before the book of Judges, which is Joshua. Uh, so, give you a little bit of history and background on Joshua. This is a period uh, in history uh, where, uh, if you remember, Joshua succeeded Moses, and he had taken the people all the way up into uh, the, the borders of the land of Canaan. Okay, This was the promised land that God had promised Israel all the way back from Father Abraham. And so now they are there, and so he's fixing to die. And so they divide up all the clans, right? And they divide up the land and the territory, and they're going to take different parts of Canaan. They're supposed to go in, and they're supposed to subdue the land. They're supposed to take charge of it, and they're supposed to do certain things. And so Joshua reminds them during this period why they are there. And so he says, you're supposed to go into the land. He says, um, you're not supposed to take any of their gods. You're basically supposed to expel them from the land. You're not supposed to leave them there. They're not supposed to hang out. And so it was a complete cleansing of the land. And we'll talk about that a little bit uh, as we go through. And then at the very end of it, he says, you have a choice to make. He says, choose this day who you're going to serve, right? Are you going to serve God or are you going to serve your enemies? And I think that's a, a major point Joshua makes is he says, who are you going to serve? And they said, oh, yeah, we're in. Man, we are in with you. We're going to serve God. We're going to go in. We're going to kick down doors. We're going to take names. Man, we're in. We're all in on this. Okay, and so they go into the land uh, and began to subdue it and take the land. And so if you look um, in Joshua chapter 1, they start going in, and, and when they get to the very cusp of, of Canaan, right, they're like, wait a minute, uh, you didn't name a successor, Joshua. Who's going to take us into the land, right? And so the Lord appoints Judah and says, Judah, I want you to go, um, which is kind of fitting, um, if you know anything about biblical history, out of the line of Judah comes Christ. So he's the elder son. So he says, hey, go in, take people in initially all the way up until about verse 18, 19. Guess what? They're doing pretty good. They're doing what the Lord had told them to. They're going in. They're conquering. They're doing all these things. 
And then we have this scene where Judah came in, um, in verse 19, and it says, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Okay? So the first time in a while, the, the nation of Israel couldn't drive somebody out. They didn't succeed. Now, we know the Lord was with them, but for whatever reason, they said they had chariots of iron. We're not really sure what that was. Uh, there was um, some speculation of, of maybe um, some new warfare tactics and things that they were using that they had never seen before. But they, they, it says they couldn't drive them out. And so you continue to go, and the rest of Judges chapter 1, you're going to see them go in and not be able to completely win the battle. So they kind of do what was expected. But then it says, up, if you go all the way up until about verse 30 and 31, but at the end of 30 it says, um, after they had won uh, the battle, it says they did not drive out the inhabitants of, the, of Kitron, of the inhabitants of Nahola. And it says, so the Canaanites lived among them, but they became subject to forced labor. So they lived among them, and they brought them in, and they said, hey, it's easier and more advantageous to us just to let you hang out, right? Okay, this is where it gets really difficult. I don't know if you've ever um, done a DIY do-it-yourself project at your house. Uh, that's the big thing now. You know, we, we, we can go on Facebook or YouTube or wherever and give videos and things of, of, of different projects we can do. My wife always kind of laughs at me when we go to craft fairs or anything. I'll see something, but I won't buy it because I'm like, I could make that, right? And so I get home, and I think, man, I could do that. And so you get all the stuff together, and you begin to make whatever that is, and then you're like, man, this is as easy as it looks. I thought I could make this. But at the end of the day, you know, it doesn't always turn out the way we want it to. I picture this is a little bit the way the nation of Israel is. They go in, they go, we're all in. Man, sounds good to us, God. But you know what? It wasn't as easy as they thought it would be. And the minute they faced adversity and things went bad for them, they caved and gave in. So what in the world is Judges doing in the Bible? Well, I mean, why are we talking about all this? Well, why is all this here? Well, the Bible is more than simply a book of virtues or a book of, of rules or a book of inspirational stories. Why? Because the Bible, unlike any other book, any other religious book that's ever written, okay, is not about following moral examples, okay? It's about understanding that God is merciful and long-suffering for us. So what you're going to find out through the book of Judges is even though they failed, and there's going to be extreme consequences for the nation of Israel, God was still merciful with them. I mean, think about the times He's merciful with us. And so this is the big idea for us this morning, and we're going to spend our time wrapping around this, is whatever controls your life is your God. Whatever you let control your life becomes your God. And I hear music, yes. Uh, whatever uh, you, know, you let invade your space or come into your camp has the possibility of controlling you. So the person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance they're going to be controlled by that acceptance. Uh, the person who, uh, who seeks to please other people, they're going to be controlled by that. See, the problem is, you get down here to the end 
of, of Judges chapter 1, and you have the nation of Benjamin who fails to dislodge the Jebusites from Jerusalem. Okay, so Jerusalem at this time was not King David's city. It wasn't the, it wasn't the, the city, uh, the holy city at the time. And so they failed to drive them out. And then you go all the way to the house of Joseph. They weren't supposed to make covenants with other nations, but this Canaanite's coming out of the city, and they make a covenant with him. They say, hey, if you will let us show us how to get into the city, we'll let you go. And so they made a covenant because they didn't trust God. And the Manasseh, man, he fails over and over again to drive out inhabitants. So, so the reason implied is that it made more economic sense. It was better, more advantageous for them just to let the people stay in the land and try to kick them out. What happens when convenience trumps obedience in our life? Think about that. What, what happens when convenience trumps obedience, right? It's more convenient for us. It's easier for us. See, the reason given is not necessarily that they were superior in power because they weren't. The nation of Israel, by this time, they, they were feared. I mean, they had a fearsome army. They weren't wimps. They had won many battles by the hand of the Lord over this time. But they come in here, and now they're having all these incomplete victories. And this is where we come to our text today. It's in Judges chapter 2. Look at the very beginning of Judges chapter 2. So it says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you into the land that I swore I would give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say I will not drive out them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voice and they wept. And they called the name of that place Bacham. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. So what's going on here? Well, I think there's several things. Suddenly, it had gotten really bad and gotten so bad that God had to send an angel of the Lord to them. Have things ever gotten so bad in your life that God sent an angel to you to, to, to reprimand you? I mean, that's pretty bad. I mean, it had gotten so bad. It says he sent an angel of the Lord. And notice a couple of things here. Okay, he said, I brought you up, so he's recounting all the things he did for them. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I did all these things to you. And in essence, God is saying, you know what? You are making me look bad, right? I did all of these things for you, and you are making me look bad. He said, in fact, I said I would never break my covenant for you with you. See, those, those who can't remember their past are condemned to repeat it. Okay, now we can look at a lot of things in our culture and our world today, and I think Judges fits really nicely in what's going on, right? If we don't remember, okay, if we forget the things of the past, not only the good things, but the sins of our parents, we, we are, are bound to repeat those. See, there's a beginning of a time and an end of time, and, and history doesn't stand still. It keeps moving. However, we do know as individuals, there's this cycle of sin that goes on in our world. And if you just watch it, it just cycles around. And, and remember, I, I said several months ago, I said, if it's not, not 
COVID this year or, or riots this year. It's going to be something else next year. There's going to be something that's going to detract us. There's going to be something that's going to try to throw us off track. See, the world you'll encounter in the book of Judges has a number of scary resemblances to our world today. It has a number of really frightening things. As you read, you encounter uh, indiscriminate violence, political disorder, uh, objectification of humans as a means to an end, the absence of both public and personal faith and prayer, and the notion that truth with a capital T doesn't exist at all. There's no such thing as truth. It's whatever you make it to be. Whatever you want it to be. And he says, in, uh, as we go on, you're going to hear a phrase said over and over, in those days, um, they did what was right in their own eyes. They did what was right in their own eyes. Why? Because first, there was no king in Israel. Okay, so, so this is, Judges fits really nicely in between. You had the Exodus, and then you're going to have the monarchs to come up with King David and Saul and Solomon and all that, right? So it fits in the middle of this. And so God's design and God's plan was for them to go in and subdue the land, and God said, I have gifted it to you. I've handed it to you. What are you going to do with what I've given you? See, half-hearted discipleship leads to a life of compromise in our life. Half-hearted discipleship leads to a life uh, of compromise. What is discipleship? Well, discipleship simply means intentionally partnering with another Christian, someone else, another believer, and showing them how to live as a Christian. Showing them how to walk like their father. And so Jesus taught his disciples to follow him and to obey him and to obey his commands and to do as he told them to. And the last thing Joshua said was, make sure you do this. Okay, this is what you're supposed to do. Choose who you're going to serve. And hearing about the, the discipline of the Israelites many times is uncomfortable for us, right? We, we look at this and we're uncomfortable with it. Why? Well, often we don't realize that discipline is a part of discipleship and in all of our lives. And, and I'm not saying, I, I mean, obviously, I don't know God's greater plan with the things that are going on in our culture and world today, but I wonder if in, in, in a way there is a discipline going on. There, there's a, a sense of discipline. Well, we're being disciplined, right, because of the things that uh, we, we didn't do earlier in our life and in our Christian culture. And without the guidance of the Holy Spirit partnering with us, the, the, the discipleship is dying and, and it's not living. So true discipleship, this is what it is. It is dying to self and living wholeheartedly for Christ. Not half-heartedly. So you notice they came in the land, and so they didn't completely disobey God. This is, this is an interesting thing. They didn't completely disobey Him, right? They, they were, I guess you could say partly obedience, if, if that's even a term. Can we be partly obedient? You know, it's like our, our children, you know, uh, let's say we give them an easy task. Say, okay, go clean your room. But we give them, ram we give them parameters. They're like, okay, put all your toys away. I want you to make your bed. I want you to dust. I want you to vacuum. Okay, come back like an hour, hour and a half later. Okay, the bed's maybe made. The toys are kind of put up, but there's still some toys around. Uh, they didn't pick up anything that actually dust, right? They just kind of hit the high spots, right? And you look at the room and you're like, it's, it's incomplete. Oh, I did what you asked. No, you really didn't. You just kind of did. You wanted to appease me. You want me to feel like I was in control for a while, but really, you didn't obey me. See, there's not a halfway with God. There's not a halfway with sin. 
In fact, we read in Revelation where God says, where the uh, writer of, of, of Revelation, John, says, uh, I would rather you be hot or cold, but that you're in the middle, it makes me sick. So with God, there's not a middle ground. So how did Israel been disobedient to God? Two ways. They made covenants with people of the land that they weren't supposed to, and they failed to get rid of the altars. See, the purpose of the whole military campaign wasn't an ethnic cleansing. It wasn't just get rid of a culture and a people. Okay, It wasn't about imperialistic conquests because they were told to take nothing with them. They weren't supposed to plunder and, and take all of these things and slaves from themselves. The purpose was to set up God as the living God over all of creation and make His name known. To be faithful to the Lord. Either all of our lives are given to God in grateful, loving obedience or none of it is. We can't set in the middle church. And that's what happens over and over in our culture, is we set in the middle. See, a life of compromise brings half-hearted effort, right? Have you, have you ever heard that, um, you know, well, you're just giving partial effort. You're not really all in. You know, I, I grew up um, uh, with, a, with a granddad and, and dad. My, my granddad actually worked. Uh, the oil fields when I was younger, and my dad was a petroleum engineer, and so he uh, used to take me out to the oil field, and I got to see the pump jacks go up and down, and I saw, uh, I believe my father wanted me to see how people worked hard, how they put effort into their job and their work, right? And so it, it, somewhere it was instilled in me that you don't do a job halfway, and as, so one of my early jobs I had as a teenager was my own lawn service. I had this, this uh, trailer I pulled behind my my uh, Ford Pinto, go look it up. It's the God ugliest car, okay? And it was a stick shift, and it had green plastic seats on the inside and, and green carpet. It was ugly, right? But I pulled this thing around. I pull up, and one of the things my granddad and my dad taught me is you don't halfway mow a yard. You do the job completely. So when you're done mowing and you're done edging, you sweep up. You clean up. You want to make sure you edge completely. Don't just partway do it. Okay? And I had some very faithful customers because they knew when I came, I was going to do the complete job. But if I just did a halfway job, they said, wait a minute, you didn't finish. The job isn't done. When do we leave our spiritual lives that way? We just leave them undone. Um, I was uh, listening to a, a podcast by John MacArthur, and he was talking about the myth of influence in our church. I believe a lot of our churches have left the job undone, unfinished. He says, people that we seek to influence for the kingdom of God, many times we begin to compromise in our churches by giving a non-threatening message. Or we craft the churches like a big heavenly Starbucks, right? We just It's, it's kind of like the, uh, the old Friends or the old Cheers movie you know, where everybody knows your name and so you just come in and sit down and, and it's a non-threatening environment. In fact, the mentality, he says, of many churches today has minimized the holiness of God. The seriousness of worship has disappeared. Church discipline is non-existent in most churches. And sin is minimized to the point where sin isn't really sin. And we stop calling it what it is. See, somehow we think that going to the other extreme for the kingdom of God is going to win the lost. That they're just going to come in and say, man, I want Jesus because he's just so attractive. And basically what John MacArthur said is, is people want people to think Jesus is cool. Okay? Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that Paul faced the same problems 
And he said in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It is the power of God to those who are being saved by it. See, most people that buy into the myth of influence alter the gospel or they take the, to take the heat off them. Right? The uncomfortable things. And so it would be easy for us to look at this and say, man, this is, this is an uncomfortable situation. But this is the world we live in today. See, there may be all kinds of things in our life that we think we are incapable of doing, such as forgiveness. Well, I can't forgive them. I can't forgive him or her. Right? You don't know what they've done to me. Or, or the difficulty of truth-telling. I just can't really tell them the truth. Because if I do, they might not like me anymore if I truly speak the truth in love. Or, or the temptation is, I, I can't resist doing this in my life. It's just how I'm built. It's how I am. And so we continue to sin over and over again. And so the nation of Israel had fallen into an aspect of, of compromise. The second thing is half-hearted discipleship leads to failure to remember. They had a failure to remember so look, um, beginning in verse 6, so it's going to recount. By the way, this may look a little out of place. If you look into Joshua, most scholars believe all of this didn't take place before he died, that this is just a retelling of Joshua's death. And so it says, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance, take possession of the land, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance. Now this is important. Joshua is the first one of the patriarchs that was buried in the promised land, the land of his inheritance. Because you remember, all the others were not. They, didn't, they were not buried in the land of the promise. So they buried him within these lands, right, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of, uh, of Gash. And it says, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. Okay, so what's happening here is now this whole generation that's gone before them is dying. They're gone. They're no longer around. And this new generation comes up, and, and these young whippersnappers, that's not what it says here, that's what I'm saying. It says, they arose another generation, right? Another generation that altered what had been said. It said they did not know the Lord or the work that He had done in Israel. Now, there's something partly in me, man, I kind of find it hard to believe they didn't know anything unless their parents just didn't teach them anything, right? And so I don't think that's necessarily what it's saying here. I think it's kind of that um, temporary amnesia. I mean, they had just forgotten. It had been, you know, um, uh, I don't know, maybe a long time since they had uh, heard all of those stories and all of those things and their parents were getting older. Maybe they got tired of telling them and they quit telling them all that God had done for them. But somehow they had forgotten. See, half-hearted discipleship leads us to a failure to remember. When we just do things halfway, we forget all the things God has done for us. Unsurprisingly, a generation that does not know the Lord quickly begins to live in a way that reflects their ignorance. We see this in Judges 2, 11-15. So often... We look at the private matter. I may not agree with this or that, but that's up to them. Or, or we might say, it's, it's my life. 
I'm going to live it how I want to live it. Or we may say, what's the harm in, and we just then fill in the blank, right? It doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter. Do you really think God cares about that part of my life? See, sin isn't a private matter, and it wasn't for the nation of Israel. Sin is never a private matter. I think sometimes we think, it's my business how I live my life. It's kind of like a paper cut on your pinky, right? But nothing can hurt like the dickens, okay? But to understand that a small sin can cause great damage, when do we lose sight of what matters the most? And I think this is where the nation of Israel has come to, but it's also where we come to. And so then you go into verse 11. It says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, their God, altogether. See, the people wept. You'll notice uh, at the end of uh, verse uh, 5, it says their first response was to weep, right? Have your kids ever given you crocodile tears before? You know what those are? You know, man, my daughter, I love her. She was good at that, right? She knew how to play daddy really good. She'd get these big crocodile tears and those big blue eyes, and she'd look up at me. I'm like, oh, man. You know, and I'm not saying she wasn't truly remorseful or, or, or sorry for what she'd done, but sometimes I think we give crocodile tears to God, right? We're more sorry we got caught. And I think that's what's going on here. See, a failure to remember brings empty gestures many times. And, and you know, we'll, all of a sudden, we got caught in sin. And not that we're not truly remorseful, but you'll find out not very far after this, what did it say? And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They went right back to the other gods. See, they forgot what the Lord had done. They had forgotten their history, how often future generations repeat the sins of the past. At this point in Israel's history, Joshua stood next to Moses as a great hero in their faith. And they have forgotten the Exodus. They've forgotten going across the Red Sea. They've forgotten the stories of the battles that had taken place where Joshua went to Jericho and, and subdued the city. I mean, they've forgotten all of this, and all of this fails and falls by. I'll tell you what, church. This is why I believe in, in no uncertain terms the church today, we need godly men and women and even older men and women. So if you're older in here, the church needs you. We need those reminding the younger generation of the stories, the things God has done in our life, the things God has done in, in the generations that came up uh, before us. See, they have forgotten all these things. A failure to remember then brings abandonment. What happens when saving acts of God no longer become precious to us? That's not important to us. I remember hearing my grandmother share stories about coming to faith and about her life and, and about uh, my granddad. When they got married, he, he was uh, uh, followed a different faith but wasn't really even a believer in Christ. And many Sundays, he would sit at home. I mean, he wouldn't go to church. And, and she would take my dad by. And back then, that was just something a lot of people didn't do. Because uh, that's a whole different generation. But she would take my dad. Just her and him would go to church. And I remember uh, she said one Sunday my dad asked my granddad, Dad, why don't, why don't you go to church? Right? And it just struck him you know, that somehow he was missing out on an important part of that spiritual development of his child. And so he began going to church. And my granddad got saved and he's baptized. And, and they began to serve together. But see, she told me that story because she wanted me to know their faith. 
their history, where they come from. See, when we abandon that altogether and we just water down the gospel and we stop talking about what God has done, we lose our effectiveness for the kingdom of God. See, they abandoned the Lord. They abandoned first what He said, right? So first, this is the way we abandon God. We first abandon what He said, that, that He is going to do what He said, right? There's consequences for our sins. They abandoned what the Lord had promised. He had promised to be with them. And in fact, He had promised to fight for them. And now He says, guess what? I'm not going to fight for you anymore. If you're going to live that way and do that way, you know, I'm going to let you into the hand of your enemies. And they abandoned what the Lord did. Whenever Israel turned away from the Lord to worship idols, He chastened them. But then they turned back to Him. And so we have this cycle going over and over and over again. And the problem in this land and the problem in our land today, I'll tell you, is idolatry. And it still is. It always has been from the very beginning. See, the problem of idolatry has been going on from the very beginning. It affects every aspect of God's creation. And, and, okay, so what is idolatry? Well, when we make something more important or more significant than God, when we choose to honor and worship something above God, and it can be anything in your life. See, I think sometimes we think it has to be, you're like, well, Pastor Mark, I don't have any carved images setting on my mantle and we don't go in and light the candles at night and bow down before uh, that carved image. I'll say, no, you don't. You probably aren't worshiping the fertility God today somewhere in your life. Okay, that would be weird. And I don't think we do that. But what do we do? In our culture, it happens all the time. Maybe, maybe we're not loving the way we should. Maybe we're not parenting the way we should. Maybe we're not... Um, sharing the gospel the way we should. See, I think sometimes we forget the things we're supposed to be doing that we choose not to be doing in our life. I'll tell you this morning, um, if you're a parent here, the, the problem that arises many times is how are we passing our faith on to our children? How are we passing our faith on to a whole other generation? So somewhere, these children missed it. I don't know how, but it says somewhere they missed the most important thing. Parents, that's why it's so significant what you do for your children right now. And, and I, I would also tell you, it's never too late. You know what I found out? We never stop raising our kids. It doesn't matter how old they get. How are we praying for them? How are we sharing the gospel with them? Uh, Billy Sunday, was a, he was an evangelist at the turn of the century and led, led thousands to the Lord. But this is what he said. He said, one of the greatest tragedies of my life is that although I've led thousands of people to Jesus Christ, my own sons don't know Him. They're not saved. See, sometimes we can do a lot of things in God's name, and we forget our children, those that are closest to Him. So, so this is tension. This is a tension that continues all the way throughout the book of Judges until God finally gives them somebody, a judge, to come up, right? And so we're going to read about all of these judges but what we're going to find out is half-hearted discipleship will always lead into a cycle of sin in our life. If you've ever uh, taken little kids to the playground and, and watched them uh, play tag, right? And, and so uh, back in my day, man, they had all kinds of weird tag games. And so we used to love to play tag. And usually it was in a smaller place, right, uh, where everybody get in a fenced area, and it was the one time that little boys could legitimately chase girls without getting in trouble, okay? And so we, we used to love to do that. You know, we'd chase each other around this area. Well, if you ever sit and watch the game, you're thinking, the person that's it, 
Why don't they just stay in one place, right, and let them run around them? Because eventually what's going to happen? And so I finally figured that out. I'm like, I'm not chasing you. All right, everybody go. And they're like, well, no, you're supposed to chase us. No, go, because I'm going to tag you. If I stay in one place, I can reach this way, I can reach this way, and I can get all of you in one swoop. See, I think sometimes in life and in our sin life, what we're doing is we're just chasing the answer, right? And we're just chasing around and understanding that, that no one, no one that, that sins keeps chasing after that thing, right? At some point, we got to stop. At some point, we need to look at the situation, look at the pattern of our life. What is the pattern of your life bringing? What does it lead to in your life? See, the dynamic of this book forces us to look at our own lives, our life of compromise, our life of worship, but it also encourages us that, that faith and courage is what the Bible calls us to. We are called to live a life today of faith and courage. So how does this happen? Well, the cycle of sin moves into several steps, and I want to share this with you. I think understanding how we get caught up in this is a major part. So a cycle of sin brings God's anger and judgment, right? This is the part we don't like, right? We don't like God's anger and judgment, right? My, my kids, they didn't like it when Daddy was not happy with them, right? And they were being disciplined. They don't like that. But there's a, a measure of anger and judgment. So, so it happens first that they see this anger and judgment. Well, the next thing that follows is repentance, right? The tears come, right? God, I'm sorry, you know, please forgive me. Have mercy on me, right? I mean, I, I've had people in my ministry that I see go through this cycle of sin, and they live in sin, and then they come back and they repent, and, and they, were, they, were, they were in distress, right? Their heart hurt because they had hurt their father. And then the judges come up in the book of Judges, and it said they didn't listen to them again. They didn't listen to God's direction again, and where'd they end up? right back in the position they were in. And then eventually you're going to see towards the end um, when um, Gideon comes on the scene, they're going to be like, you know what? We are tired of all these judges. Why don't you just give us a king, God? We just want a king. Give us somebody to rule, right? So basically they eventually say, God, your plan stinks. But we don't like it, right? We want to do it our way. See, a cycle of sin leads us to a failure to make God Lord of our life. That's what he desires. Church, I, I will tell you, he desires that more than anything else, to be Lord of your life. See, the pagan worldview says this. It says there are many gods. Each of, have a particular influence in our life, but none is truly Lord of our life. And I would say many of us, when we live like the pagans, when we live like the rest of the world, we're saying we don't have a Lord of our life, right? All these other things can take that place, and they can fill that void for a time in my life. And we allow it to happen. See, it was this system of belief that led to Israel's failure, but I would say it's the system of belief today that has put the church in the situation it's in. They tell us, in, in the culture and world we live in today, in, in, in this 2020, the church is actually in a decline. Okay, I don't know if you've noticed that, and it's been little by little over the years. Then you even go look at what used to be considered really large church or mega church. They'll tell you their churches are in decline too. Why? Well, I think there are several reasons for that. I think one is we're repeating the sins of the past and we've forgotten right where we came from. We've forgotten what's most important. I think the second thing is we've forgotten this aspect. 
Worship of the Lord plus anything else doesn't work. (laughs) So if you're going to worship God, but you're also going to worship this other thing, it doesn't work. In fact, look what he says, beginning down in the Judges uh, in in verse uh, 17. It says, Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he, he saved them. So he sent them a Savior. He saved them from their enemies in those days. But before long, for the Lord was moved to pity because of their groanings, and they were afflicted. He sent all of these judges up. But then it says they were more corrupt than ever before. How is that possible? They went back. They were more corrupt than ever before. See, worship of the Lord plus anything else leads to prostitution, right? You ever think of yourself that way? No. I mean, hopefully not, right? But maybe we should. What does that mean? Well, Prostitutes are people whose lives are out of control, whose lives are not their own. They are desperate and who are giving themselves without getting anything in return. There's no pleasure for their toil. They use the word prostitute in Scripture. Here tells us that when we serve an idol or some other god, we are entering into an intense relationship with something that cannot satisfy you. Think about that. The Bible says that over and over again. It's an intense relationship with some. Sorry, parents in here. I just thought about that. Y'all are going to have some neat discussions later. Um, but it's in the Bible. It's, it's scriptural. And to understand that when we give ourselves to something else that, that, that we should never, never give ourselves to. But does, does it truly satisfy us? See, this tells us that God sees all of our sins as idolatry. And he sees all of the times that we go after other gods as prostitution. How do we know if Christ is Lord over every area of our life? Well, I think first we need to identify the false gods in our life and in society, right? You need to know them when you see them. Do you know that that's a false god, a false identity? Okay, it could be the identity of beauty. Trust me, the older I get, that gets harder because, <laughs> you know, I want to look like I did. my wife was going through a box of her high school stuff, right? And she's pulling out these, these pictures of prom and all these old pictures, and we're looking at those, and we're going, man, that ain't me anymore. That, that's not you, right? Because we change, but sometimes we follow that God in our society. The second thing is we need to look at every area of our lives, see our families, our careers, our positions, our ambitions, Are those things taking the place of God in our life? And then we ask ourselves two questions. And these are are questions I think we all need to regularly ask ourselves. Am I willing to do whatever God says about this area of my life? And see, the reality is the nation of Israel, they weren't willing to do whatever God said when He rose up these judges. They liked it for a time when they were saving them. But pretty soon that wore off. And then the second question I think we need to ask, am I willing to accept whatever God sends in this area of my life? Sometimes it may be difficulty. Sometimes we may go through difficult times. Am I willing to accept this? How are we supposed to live among the pagans, among unbelievers? How can you live a good life among a non-believing world today and among all of the chaos that you see going on? It's a challenge. 
And we're continually challenged with that. When well, 1 Peter 2, 11-12, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain. Listen to this. So what's a sojourner or exile? Okay, That's somebody who's not at home. Okay, This may be your, your address, right? But this is not where you're going to end up. So he says, You're to act as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So when we see this as our home, that's when we buy into it. That's when we want to get comfortable. Right? He says, don't get comfortable where you live. And he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when you seek, when we, when we speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of your visitation. See, the cost of wholehearted discipleship is your life. That's what it costs. The Bible says that over and over again. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, it's a new creation. Galatians 2.20, I am to be crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but He lives in me. See, we are to daily realize that if we're going to truly be His disciple wholeheartedly, that it's our life. It's who we are. We don't lay it down. So when you leave the church on Sunday morning, you don't lay down your Christianity at the door of the church. You don't lay it down at your house or your dinner table at night, right? You take up the banner of Christ and you live it. See, God is saying, you've put me in an impossible situation. He's basically saying, I promised all of these blessings to you. I promised that I would give you all of this. I'd sworn all these things to you, but you were disobedient. And I also said, if you didn't, this is what's going to happen, right? So this is what's happening to the nation of Israel. On the one hand, God is holy and just and cannot tolerate sin, but on the, other, uh, on the other side of it, okay, he can't tolerate the loss of his people. He is committed to them. And I want you to know this morning, he is committed to you as a believer. He doesn't wish that any would perish, but what? All would come to repentance. He is for you. The Bible says that you are crushed. You're persecuted, but not crushed. You're beat down, but not abandoned. I mean, he is your God. He loves you desperately. And he desires your affection. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be that sin for you. So what is the answer for the, the immense adversity going on in Judges? The cross of Christ. That's why it's in our Bible. It all points to that. See, God poured out his wrath on a person. And that person was Jesus Christ. He came to be the wrath bearer of sins for us. Only through the cross of, of Christ can we be justified. Can we be made right at all? So without the cross of Christ, what happens in our life? We complacently give in to sin over and over again. We're just going to give in to it over and over again. Or the second thing may happen, if you know Christ, you may just continue to give in to that sin. You live under the burden of guilt and shame in your life. Well, the Bible says that guilt and shame okay, are, are not a part of the Christian life because the cross has set us free. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is freedom, right? And so we look in the Declaration of Independence that we have the right to, what? to live what? Free, right? As free citizens. We have the right to pursue happiness, to enjoy the, the things that this country has to offer. We have those rights. Did you know as a believer in Christ, you have an even greater right because you're rising the inheritance of the kingdom of God. And that's who we are. See, I used to love, also when I was on the playground as a kid, I, I loved the slides and the swing. 
But you know the thing I hated the most, and they could take those out of every playground in America, and I wouldn't cry a tear, is the merry-go-round. I hated that thing. I think kids loved to torture me. They would set me in the middle, and they would just spin Mark to see when he'd throw up first, you know. And I'm like, I get, and you get off that, and, and you just fall down flat on your face. See, I think many times our lives are like that. We feel like they're on the merry-go-round. You know, maybe you feel like that this morning. You're just on this big merry-go-round. See, without the cross, complacency, guilt continue to invade your life. But with the cross, we have an incredible freedom in Jesus Christ. And that's what's coming. And you're going to see that. Even through all the stuff we're going to experience with, the, with those that were in Judges, okay, we also see the immense mercy and grace of a loving and gracious King. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you this morning that you gave us this book of Judges. Father, even as they became complacent, as they have forgotten all that you had given them. Father, I thank you for the cross because we know that is coming. And because you preserved your people, Father, through time and space and immense difficulties and heartaches in their life, Father, you sent a Redeemer to redeem your people. And we praise you for that this morning, Father. We thank you that we are redeemed. We are forgiven because you love us. You have set your affection on your people. And you, you told the nation of Israel and judges, I have promised to secure that. And Father, we know that you are God of your promises and you have not forgotten your children. Father, I pray we'd learn to be obedient children to you and everything that's going on, all the chaos in the world, Father, just greater symptoms of a greater reality that people need Jesus. They need you in their lives this morning. Father, take us, renew us, heal us, heal our land, and let us turn back to you. In your name we pray. Amen.